led us so beautifully this morning. Amen. Yeah. I want to um, start off this morning with a question. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Henk. I'm one of the elders in the congregation. I'm going to be ministering the Word of God, which is such a great privilege. So here's my question to you this morning. I want you to think really seriously about this question. What if you, what would you do if you knew that you had only one week left? On earth. What would you do if you knew you had only one week left? Don't look at me, think. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what you're going to do. I want you to think about what you're going to do. What comes to your mind? <coughs> you see, when, when living with the end in mind, it really helps us to focus on what is important. Suddenly you think a lot of, about a lot of things and suddenly some things are not important anymore. Today you sit here, you worry about this, you worry about the, the chicken in the oven, you know, you worry about your bills that you need to pay. I'm sure if you're gonna die in a week's time, you don't care about the bills that needs to be paid. Okay, those things doesn't become important anymore. But then what is important? What remains? So, in light of the coming of Jesus, how should we live then? Because if the coming of Jesus means he's going to come soon and, and he's going to make an end to it all, and we don't know when that is, here's the thing. If, if nothing else happens, we can assume that we will grow old and we will become maybe 70 or 80 or 90 years old. And we all bank on that, eh? And then we say, oh, nothing else should happen in between. That was just so horrible. But you know what? Our life and our death is not in our hands. And what if Jesus comes right now? That means that's the end of your life. It stops here. Your end of your life on earth stops that very moment. And the thing is, we don't know when he's coming back, so it can happen any moment. That means the end of your life can happen any moment. I'm not just talking about you dying maybe in a car accident or you know, something like that. I'm just talking about the reality of Jesus coming back at any moment and then our life ends, then what? So we should really live from that perspective. So today I'm introducing a, a new series, it's called In Light Of, and we're gonna walk through the book of Thessalonians. So you can already open there. It's an expository series. What, is, what does that big word mean? It means we're going into the Word of God and allow the Scripture and the Holy Spirit to expose what's going on inside of Scripture. Okay? We're not trying to impose on it. We allow the Word of God to be exposed to us. Now, it, it means we're going to go from start to end through the book together in the next couple of weeks. It means you, when you get home, you need to read through the book of Thessalonians <laughs> from start to end. You know, we look at all the scriptures in context to see what really happened. You wrote this book. <coughs> to whom was it written? Why was it written? You need to get the perspective of that. And today I'm going to give you a lot of that context. It's going to be a little bit for five minutes or so. It's going to sound like a history channel. You get all this information, blah, 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 blah. And you ask yourself, where did he get all that information from? 
You know, a lot of that is actually in the Bible, and some of it we rely on commentaries of people that studied history and put all the historical facts together to help us to see it in perspective. But I want to encourage you, for your own growth, if you struggle with understanding what the books of the Bible are about and how to approach each book, this is a wonderful resource. I can really recommend it. It's called Unlocking the Bible. It's quite thicker than the Bible. <laughs> it's written by David Pawson. He's an expert teacher and theologian, and he's done a great job of taking you through every book in the Bible and helping you to see how do you approach each book. Why was it written? Some books are literally uh, uh, written. It's poetry. Some of it are like the Psalms, or some of it are historical accounts. Some of it are letters, some of it are different books. It's got different styles. And today, we're going to talk about Thessalonians, which is a letter. And the letter is usually written by someone for someone to convey a message. Okay, if you miss your grandma, you're going to maybe today just send her a WhatsApp. It's basically a letter saying, hey, grandma, how are you? I miss you. Okay. But why do we need to go into all that historical context? You see, the truth in the Bible can never mean something to you that it didn't mean to the original um, audience. It's really important. Otherwise, we are just taking our own life and imploding into the Bible and saying, you know, um, oh, this is what it means for me. Yes, there are many things that it can mean to you, but it can never mean something to you that it didn't mean to the original people that, that heard it for the first time. So we need to be accurate, going back to what it meant initially, so that we can learn, okay, so what can we take from that today in our context? All right, so let's get to the, the, the Word of God, 1 Thessalonians 1. We're just going to read that passage together. <clears throat> okay, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Typical way of how Paul starts, grace to you and peace. He blessed them, greets them. We give thanks to God always for you, all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. Another translation says your work produced by faith. Then he says, we, we thank God for your labor of love, your labor prompted by love. Beautiful is that. And for your steadfastness of hope, or your endurance inspired by hope. Wow, he's acknowledging something beautiful about this church. The hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So Paul's saying, I'm convinced you guys are saved. You got it. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Remember when we were with you, what type of people we were when we lived among you. And you became imitators of us in the Lord. So your first example was us, Paul, Timothy, the leaders. And you became imitators of us. You see the responsibility of leadership. You're calling people to, to, to take your lead, to follow your lead to imitate you. If you lead people to Christ, you are their first leader, not the pastor. You are. They need to imitate you. How does your life look like? Can they imitate you and they become like Christ? 
Then he says, and you received the word in, in, in much affliction. That means you were troubled by all these sufferings and persecution and, and things that you had to go through because of the gospel. And yet you received it so well with, a, with joy of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't a heavy thing for you. It was a joyful thing. So you became an example, a model to all the believers in Macedonia. And then he goes on and say, it's not just there. It actually spread to everywhere. Can you see now? You received the gospel. You started to follow our example. You imitated us to such a point that you are now actually the example to so many other believers in the area. You see the growth that came in that congregation. And then verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols. It's a very important part there. To serve the living and true God and, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So that's just the introduction. That's just chapter 1. That's what we're going to focus on today. So let's understand what this book is about. Thessalonians means the church in Thessalonica. So Thessalonica was a Greek city. It was named after Alexander the Great's half-sister. Her name was Thessaloniki. <laughs> Cute name, Thessaloniki. All right. Okay, but you'll see Thessalonica and Philippi were two cities of Greece in the northern part of Greece, close to the... Close to the um, to the ocean, to the sea, and these two cities were very close to one another. Philippi was named after King Philip. King Philip who was the ruler of the northern part of Greece, Macedonia. And then his son, Alexander, Alexander's <laughs> half-sister, she was the person that Thessalonica was named after. So these cities got great history of the great Alexander the Great and the stories, the battles that he has won, all comes down to this part of, um, of Greece. The population exceeded about 150,000 people at that time. They say in the 14th century that Thessalonica was actually bigger than London. So you have to understand it wasn't like a pathetic little town here around the corner. It was quite a thriving city. It was an important city. It was the second largest and the second wealthiest city in the Roman Empire. Okay, yeah, it's a city of influence. There's a lot of things going on. There's wealth. It was an independent city. They ruled itself. That means they had proper infrastructure. Everything was working well. Good municipality, okay? Um, they had coliseums. They had government. They had wealth. Things were going well there. A proud history, you know, um, celebrity culture. And then uh, uh, along with the Greek culture comes the Greek method, um, myth mythology, which means they worshipped various gods. And Caesar, who is the ruler, like Hitler was the ruler for the Nazis, Caesar was thought to be Lord. He's their master. If Caesar says, you shall do this, they do it. Okay, that's how they lived in that city. Now, <clears throat> who is the Thessalonian church? Now, we, we see in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, how this church was planted. It's about 49 AD. That means it's about 15 to 16 years after Jesus was raised to heaven. Fifteen years later, Paul 
arrived in the city. Now, what happened here? Paul actually first started to plant a church in Philippi, which was the first European church planted by Paul in the city of Philippi. It was a very short church plant, okay? He preached to the people. People got saved. It was a radical uh, movement of God, actually quite a revival. And then he got a lot of persecution from the Romans. They thrown him in jail. And then Paul played the Roman card. He said, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You threw me in prison without a trial. And then they scrapped for a moment, and they said, okay, we're sorry, sorry, sorry. And the Romans actually escorted Paul out of Philippi and said, okay, you better go. Out. So he was kicked out of Philippi, and then, up, oh, church. What a church plant strategy. <laughs> okay. okay, then he moved to the next town. Okay, here I am, Thessalonica, started a new church. Okay, now... Here he went to the synagogue where there was already some Jews and God-fearing people. That means people interested to become a Jew, but not really a Jew. Some of the Greeks, some of the influential Greeks were already gathering in, in places to learn about who is this God from the Jews. And then he started to reason with them. to say, okay, let me tell you who is this God. And he led them to Christ. There were also some influential women from that region that was in that first congregation. And then they got on fire. That church was just blossoming, like quickly. They got it. They, they got to salvation. And again, very soon, they hit persecution. To such a degree that it was better for Paul to leave. The second church plant, in a short time, he had to plant them and leave them. And, and there he goes. And he goes to the next town, Berea. And then there's trouble. He had to go again, go further, go to Athens. By the time he got to Athens, people didn't pay much attention to him. They were laughed, he was laughed at. By the time he got to Corinthians, Corinth, he lost a bit of moral, you know. Paul didn't have a lot of confidence at that stage anymore. He had to go through all these trials and suffering and people, difficult things happening. Okay, so just to get the context of what's going on here. So who's writing this letter to Thessalonians? It's Paul, the guy that planted the church. He's really concerned about this church. He's got a, it's, they are close to his heart. He planted the church. He's the leader. So Paul was, apart from Jesus, the most influential person in the whole New Testament. Why? Two-thirds of the New Testament was written by him. God used him mightily. He was a, an apostle, as you see, saw now, that moved from city to city and where he went, churches were planted like this. Okay. Great signs and miracles followed him. So he was a true apostle. Now, Paul wasn't a Christian all his life. Paul was actually an antichrist before he came to sal salvation. Paul was one of the, the, the traditional Jews that was persecuting the church itself. And then he got radically saved on his way on one of his routes to Damascus where he was about to persecute some believers. Then he, the light of God just struck him and he was having this real encounter with Jesus. And he got to salvation. He made a 100% turnaround <coughs> from being an antichrist to a Christian. So can you understand how passionate he is about the truth? So why is he writing then this letter on this particular time to this congregation? So as you heard now, he was moving from town to town and eventually got to the town of Corinth. By then he was really a bit demoralized. 
with all the trouble, with all the persecution, if you read the accounts of Paul, of what he had to go through for the sake of the gospel, shipwrecked, he was beaten to death, he was, he was um, left there, he was stoned, he was flogged. So we, we sort of forget those things, and we think, ah, oh, Paul is just this great guy. Yo, he had to endure quite a lot. So by the time he got to Corinth, he was really in distress and a bit discouraged. So he sent Timothy to say, Timothy, just go and check. Is that congregation still okay? I'm concerned about them. And then Timothy comes back to Paul with this report, this great report, this beautiful report about this church, that they are thriving under all the circumstances. Even if they are still facing persecution, that means some of their congregations are, um, members are dying on a daily or weekly basis because of the sake of the gospel. Think about our congregation. Think about today we are here, and next Sunday Renee is not here anymore. Not because of sickness, but because she was taken captive or arrested. And then Philip, and then Carl, and then the next Sunday. You know how demoralizing it would become? And yet, they endured. So Paul was so encouraged by this message. The good report. And he started to say, he commends them for their faith, their love, and their hope. Those three qualities that he says, I see these things in you. It sounds familiar to the book of Corinthians. He's also touching on faith, love, and hope. It's funny, he was busy in Corinth when he wrote this letter to to them, and then later writing to Corinth, he's also touching on those three aspects, faith, love, and hope. It's almost like the foundation saying, okay, guys, this is in place. I see that in your hearts. He's also saying that he's giving thanks to God because they received the gospel and they've become a model. That transition of, first of all, you had to follow us, but you received the gospel, now you are becoming the model. Okay, game on. Pressure time, okay. What are you going to do now that you've got that position? You know, you can't be a new convert for the rest of your life. You can't be a visitor to the church for the rest of your life. In our church, you're only a visitor once. Okay. <laughs> Game on. You only follow someone in your connect group so long, and then someone's going to say, hey, Lynette, it's time for you to start leading. Okay, and then what? Game on. Paul was brilliant in the fact that he actually had to leave that church. It was the best way for them to rise up and start to lead themselves. Okay, so sometimes, you know, leadership is important, but sometimes it's good when a leader moves away because suddenly we see opportunity for growth. And then at the end of this letter, he's praying for them that they must be sanctified, made holy in other words, so that they can be blameless at the coming of the Lord. So he ends this letter of the coming of the Lord, and he says, okay, when we're done here, you must be blameless when you stand before Jesus. And he talks about a whole, a whole approach to that, a holistic approach, body, spirit, and soul. Your Christian walk with God does not just in, 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 um, entail your spirit. It's not just a spiritual thing. Spirit, soul, and body. We need to be sanctified in all these areas of our lives. And this is how Paul ends his letter, again, in light of the second coming of Jesus. He's saying, so that when Jesus comes, you will be blameless. I see you've got love and faith in these things, but 
We need to move on that you can get to a place of being blameless. So just think about this in light of the second coming of Jesus. I thought to myself, okay, if I were Paul, and I had to write a letter to the church, what on earth do you write? Okay, I sit in Corinth. Okay, I'm going to write to them. Um, I hope you're doing great. Miss you guys. You know, remember to do this and remember that and, you know, come to church every Sunday. Of everything that you could say to them, he was really focusing on the second coming of Jesus. And you have to ask yourself, why? So Paul is doing three things here. When we read this book, he moves us first from ignorance to emphasis to encouragement. Okay, so let's unpack that. Ignorance. Why ignorance? Because many times in ignorance, we are just unaware of it. Some of you are today unaware that Jesus is coming back. First time you hear about it. Okay, you're not ignorant anymore. He's going to come. Okay. But it's not just the fact that Jesus comes back. It's being ignorant of the full implications. What does it mean if Jesus comes back? How clear is your theology about the return of Jesus and how it will impact us here on earth? Oh, no, that's end-time preaching. I don't want to get involved with that. Why not? You should. You should have a clear theology. You should have a stand. You should know. We don't know when Jesus comes back, but we know that he's coming back. And we know what's going to happen when he comes back. The only thing that you don't know is when. I grew up in a church that was preaching the coming back of Jesus quite strongly. (laughs) My sister's here today with me, and she will recall that. Yo, they were preaching, Jesus is going to come back. But it came a lot with a lot of, you know, fear, you know, because the wrath of God, and he's going to come. And every time you repent and you start again, I'm a new Christian now again, okay? (laughs) Because you're never sure, am I right, am I not? This is not my point. I'm not trying to scare you. But it's a serious thing. If your life is not right with God, you should be afraid. Because... He speaks about the wrath. He says, Jesus who saves us, you know, he says, wait on the son who comes, who's saving us from the wrath. So if you don't have the son of God, you are facing the wrath of God. I'm sorry to be that one preaching it to you. Make peace with it. The church should be able to preach about hell and heaven. We can't just speak about heaven. It's a reality. But I don't know about you. All these end times prophecies. Oh, makes me so tired. You can't keep up with it. It's so complicated, first of all. And then they make these predictions. And, and I don't know about you, but I think we survived quite a big one in 2012. <laughs> the Mayan calendar. And the whole world was like, ooh, the end of the world's here now. The Mayan calendar said it's going to be 2012. Rubbish. God said... Not even Jesus knew when he was on earth, when he's going to come back. Only the Father. Don't think that you're so special that God's secretly going to reveal this date to you one night when you wake up from your sleep. Okay. But those things are actually, make the, it makes the church lose a lot of credit in this world. False predictions. So let's stay away from predictions. Yeah. And this church was lacking hope because of all this tremendous persecution and suffering. And I'm sure they might have had some guys also having some predictions about the end of the world. 
I mean, even the disciples of Jesus, just before Jesus departed, they asked him this question. Lord, when is the end of the age coming? Just tell us when. When is it happening? So can you imagine you are the Thessalonian church? Paul, your church plant leader, he, off he goes. He's gone. It's just us. Now we're here. And one day, one day after the other, people are taken from the church and they are brutally murdered. And we ask ourselves, how long is this going to go? When is this going to end? How is this going to end? And then people try to encourage one another, so don't worry, maybe tomorrow. Tomorrow Jesus is going to come and then it's all over. Then tomorrow comes and tomorrow goes and another person is taken from the church and then what? So surely they also got despondent by all these people trying to interpret the end of times for them. So then Paul emphasizes this. Every chapter has got a reference to the second coming of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 1, wait on the sun. 2, in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. 3, when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. 4, who are left till the coming of the Lord. 5, blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you get the point? He's saying this is it all the time. I'm going to make sure you get this point. In the Old Testament, there was about 300 prophecies about the coming of Christ, the first coming of Jesus. In the New Testament, one in every 20 sentences has got a reference to the coming of Christ. It is an important part of our theology, people. It's not just something that we don't ever talk about. It's really important. Now, why this emphasis? The real point that Paul was making was encouragement. He saw that they've become despondent. They had faith and love, but the hope was a little bit lacking because of all the suffering, and he was speaking into their hearts to, to encourage them. Now, what was the encouragement that Paul had to the church? I tried to word it like this, and then we'll quickly unpack it. Paul encouraged them, in light of the second coming of Jesus, towards abundance of faith, love, and hope, so that they may live lives worthy of God, to continue with holiness, lavishness, I've lost you there, and endurance. <laughs> okay. In spite of suffering and uncertainty. <coughs> Abundance. A few times he uses things like, make, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow. Then he speaks about, he honors them for the way that they please God in their lives. Then he says, you must do this more and more. Then he talks about their brotherly love. And then he says, you must do that more and more. So what is Paul saying here? It's good that I see the signs of it. Now we need to trust God for the abundance of that. You need to overflow in your faith. Overflow in your love. Overflow in your hope. That's the position that we should be in. There should not be a lack on any of that aspects. Now, first of all, abundant faith for holiness. It touches on serving the true and living God and turning away from idols. That means putting your faith in something else than Jesus. Everyone on this earth has got a sense of the coming wrath. Every person struggles with condemnation every now and then. If there wasn't a God that was a righteous judge that would judge us one day, we would have never felt condemnation at all. What's the point of condemnation if there's no judgment? But what is worshiping idols? It means it's worshiping things, not God. Things 
that can save us. You say, but I, I, I worship Jesus. He saved me. Yes. But if you start to, to put your, your attention on things that can make you feel better and not Jesus, it's worship. Things that can save us from the death in our soul. Things that can add value or add significance to your life or add purpose to your life. Things like relationships, your social status, your career, your bank balance, your body, sex, substance, alcohol, drugs, whatever these things are on earth that we find our identity, we find our purpose, we find our value, it makes me feel so good. But it's not Jesus. Yes, and it can include worshiping an idol made of hands. But what about the invisible idols that's in your heart? And he said to them, you've turned from idols. You've put your faith in the living God. It's only Jesus who can really save us. And we have to put our faith in Jesus. That's where faith is rooted in, is in the living God. Faith for holiness. What does it mean? It means a lifestyle where we repent of idolatry. It's not just once I got saved, okay, great. It's every time you see that your heart is turning to an idol, you're drinking from the wrong cistern. When you notice that, you say, God, I'm sorry, this is idolatry. I'm going to bow down to you only. That's repentance, that's holiness. It's getting rid of the immorality in our souls, the idolatry, the impurity, so that we can serve God with a pure heart. Serving, he talks about serving the true and living God. Holiness frees you up so that you can really serve God. Then the second encouragement is abundant love for a life of lavishness. We don't have to unpack the concept of love. But lavishness, it is, there's a scripture that says, see how God has lavished his love upon us. It, it, it's referring to the concept of the prodigal son. We, and actually, the story is not about the prodigal son. It's the prodigal father. You know, the, the son was, had a prodigal life. It means wasteful. It means um, spending yourself in a wasteful, extrav- extravagant way, reckless, freely. So the prodigal son was spending his, his life in a reckless way. On what? On sin. The prodigal father was spending his life recklessly loving his son. He gave everything to his son. And after giving everything to his son, the spoiled brat comes back, and then what does he do? He loves him again. After being hurt so much, he took him back in. That's the lavishness of, of the love of God. So what does it mean? We need to have abundant love so that we can lavish the love of God on people. So that this broken world can feel the love of God. Where will they feel it if we don't show it? Then the third encouragement is in light of Jesus coming. Abundant hope for endurance. He talks about waiting, waiting on the Son of God. He talks about how they endured the hope that we have in salvation. Now hope is a sign of a confident expectation based on solid certainty. You hope on something that you're actually certain about. That's, that's real hope. You're just not sure when. Am I right? Yes. 
We hope that Jesus will come, we're just not sure when. We hope on eternal life. Whom of you are banking on eternal life this morning? Hands up, I want to see. Okay, so when are you going to get it? We don't know when, but we know that we're going to get it. It's for sure. The outcome is for sure. God's promises is sure. If God said something's going to happen, it's going to happen. The things that you, that you are um, struggling with, the things that you are trusting God for, when God gives you a word, then the outcome is sure. It's just the timing that you're not aware of. We, we're not sure when exactly this is going to happen. In our story, me and my wife, we've been really trusting God to fall pregnant for, and we've really struggled for about four years. And so many people have encouraged us and prayed over us, and we've got prophecies, we've got word from God, God spoke in our hearts, and, you know, it's this, okay, shall we believe it or not? Yes, we can, because it's going to happen, it's just a matter of time. We don't know the timeline. Don't let the timeline confuse you, and in the waiting, you think God is not answering the prayer. Just before, because Jesus hasn't returned yet, it doesn't mean it's not going to return. Just because it doesn't happen in your time frame, it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. By God's grace, we are now pregnant. Amen. It's a testimony of that. What is this hope? It, it brings life to the soul. If we lose hope, we lose life. Hope deferred makes the heart go sick. You become depressed when you lose hope. When hope is restored, life is restored. So we must fix our eyes on the things above and eagerly expect the Lord's return to take us to our true home, eternal life. Then these things of this life will, will fall into place for us. You know, things that really mattered so much doesn't matter that much anymore. You get perspective when you live from that point of view. So what does the second coming of Jesus mean to us? I want to frame it again. In light of his coming, when we read this book, we are encouraged to live lives worthy of God. Amen? Amen. Life of holiness, lavishness, and endurance. In spite of the suffering and uncertainty, what is the suffering that you are suffering of? What is the uncertainty in your life? What are the challenges that you are facing that's really unsettling you and making you uncertain? Maybe in your health, maybe in a relationship, or relationships, in your family, maybe in your finance, in your career. There's so many things that we can be uncertain about or that we feel a level of pain and suffering. So in spite of that, we can live this life of an abundance of the love and, and um, faith and hope in our hearts. Now here's the thing, what if we don't focus on the coming of Jesus? What if we cut it out of our theology, cut it out of our thinking, how does it change the picture? Then quickly we forsake our faith and we turn back to idols to make us feel better, to save us from this void in our souls, to calm the fear in our hearts. Quickly. Very quickly we abandon love 
and we start to protect ourselves with selfishness. No more reason to love other people because I will not be taken in account. I will not be accountable to anyone, so why bother loving other people? If we are not mindful of the second coming of Jesus and the implication of what it has for us, we lose hope and we become despondent quickly. And then when we go through trials, we give up too quickly because we don't have any more hope in our souls. You see, so faith and love and hope is anchored in the fact that Christ is coming back for us. It's anchored in who Christ is. It's anchored in what Christ has done for us. But it's also anchored in the fact that he's going to come and take us back to him, to be to the Father. I want to leave you with a statement. If you are expecting Jesus to come at any time, you will be living for Jesus all the time. And the opposite is also true. If we're not expecting Jesus to come at any time, we will not be living for Jesus all the time. Let's close our eyes. I want us to reflect on this word. What does the second coming of Jesus mean to you today? What does this word from Thessalonians mean to you today? What is God saying to you today? Where are you in this? How does your lifestyle look? Are you a model to the rest of the believers? Are your lights still shining bright? Are you living from an abundance of faith and love and hope? Are you free to live a holy life, to serve God because of holiness in your life? Or are you held back by something? Are you entangled by fear? Or is your heart filled with faith? Are you stuck in, in despondency? and depression because of a lack of hope? Have you lost hope? Tired of enduring through trials of this life. I don't know where you are today, but I'm calling us today to a place where we just refocus again, putting our eyes on Jesus, getting our focus back on the end of the game, the moment when Jesus comes back and we stand before God. If you feel that God is speaking to you today and you can see that somehow you, you have become misaligned and you want to, to get your heart back with God, please stand on your feet so that we can pray. If there's a lack in your soul, if there's a lack of love or a lack of faith or a lack of hope and you would like God to fill that up today. Would you also please stand? Thank you. <clears throat> Father, this is an important moment for us where we, in faith, choose not to turn to idols, to fill the void in our souls. And this morning I pray for every person standing, Lord, that you will just come and pour out that love and faith and hope in our souls. I pray, Lord, that you will come by your Holy Spirit and fill us up, fill us up, Lord, with your love. I pray this morning for an abundance that Paul was speaking about, Lord, that you will take us there by your Spirit to a place of abundance, Lord, where there was lack, that there will be abundance. Lord, and I pray this morning for every person that's hurting specifically, Lord, that you will just come in the hurt 
and minister your love and your hope to them. I pray for a word of God this morning, that you will just, by your Spirit, reveal a word of God that we can hold on to. Lord, and then I pray for us as a congregation, like Paul has prayed, that, that you will help us to be sanctified through and through in our body, spirit, and soul, so that we will be blameless at the coming of Jesus. We trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.